0: Welcome to the Life and Legacy Show, where we discuss all things elder law, estate, and legacy planning. Hosted by certified elder law attorney, Tim Seckler, from the Seckler Law Firm. And now your host, attorney Tim Seckler. Welcome everybody to this week's edition of the Life and Legacy Show, sponsored by the Seckler Law Firm. My name is Tim Seckler, and I am uh, happy to be chatting with you here as you listen to our show, uh, if you haven't joined us before, this is a uh, a show where we talk about all the things that I sort of encounter in my estate planning and elder law firm. We talk about uh, what most people want to do. You know, most people, what they want to do is, is make sure that they don't outlive their money, make sure that if I pass away, uh, my spouse or my kids get it. I want to make sure that my spouse has enough to get by. Uh, and that that my kids get the leftovers if I have a spouse and kids, you know that seems to be it. And and on the way out, I want it to be easy on my kids, and I don't want to lose it all at a long term care expenses. I don't want to lose it all to that nursing home. I don't want to lose it all to that tax man. Uh, I've heard nightmare stories about how all this works, and I just want to do good planning for my family. You know that that's kind of what everybody wants to talk about, and that's normally what we talk about on the radio show. Uh, I, I like to give you uh, my take on uh, what a good estate plan looks like. I want to give you my take on on uh, maybe some some not so traditional ways to do it. You know, a traditional school of thought is all you need is a simple will uh not so simple anymore not my that's that's uh to me i think we need to take a little bit of a deeper dive not that you can't use a will not that if you have a will you need to panic and say i've got the wrong thing Uh, we do lots of wills the the question is how simple do you really want it because the fact of the matter is life is complicated taxes are complicated if you have a disability in your family that's complicated if you have if you have um the uh, remarriage issues, gambling issues in your in your family, that's complicated. And and to do an effective estate plan, it's not just about getting the stuff to the kids. It's about getting the stuff to the kids in a manner that makes sense, that we have proper controls and guidance in place, uh that uh that we're not going to lose the money to the kids, divorces and lawsuits, et cetera. But that's not actually what we're talking about today. If you want to learn more about all those things, you should come to one of our live workshops. We're doing them. In, um, in the uh, Cranberry area, we're also uh, looking to get some on the calendar in uh, in uh, different communities. We've had uh, requests to come to different parts of the cities to do our workshop, and we're looking at getting some of those on the calendar. Or you can attend one of our virtual uh, workshops. All of this you can find out about at seclerlawfirm.com S-E-C-H-L-E-R, lawfirm.com. Uh, If you go to the workshops tab, you're going to find links to uh, RSVP for one of the workshops. You'll even find uh, some links to uh, pre-recorded workshops that we've done uh, for different folks. So in the law firm, we really uh, do three types of cases. We do wills and trusts. We do powers uh, powers of attorney documents. So that's all our estate planning business. We do post-death administration. And we do what we call nursing home crisis planning. If you've got a loved one in a nursing home or on their way there, we help you figure out how not to lose your house and the money in the process. Uh, and, uh, we're an education first lab, uh, law firm. So most of the time, depending on a, exactly the situation, if you have a problem going on, give us a call. We're going to offer you a free consultation. If we're not the right people to help you, uh, which often we are, I'll get you to the right people to help you, uh, with these types of situations. <clears throat> Here's what I want to talk about today though. I want to talk about something that I don't think we've ever talked about on the radio show. <clears throat> and that is end of life decision-making. All right. So, so I, I, in uh, have a bias toward talking about the money. I have a bias toward uh, talking about control and access and who's making the decisions on the money. Uh, but there's an important part of the estate planning process that I think uh, is not always been done well. I've recently had a change in how I think about this stuff uh, due to a uh, some situations I've been involved in with sick people, and and so I want to bring to light uh, this issue for our listeners uh, that. If you haven't had the conversation about end of life, look, no one's dying to have this. Oh, that's that's not a great pun there. That was unintentional. But nobody's dying to have a conversation about dying. Right. Nobody wants to sit down with the kids and say, hey, you know, here's when you pull the plug and here's when I want the thing or when I don't want to have the thing. Because we all like to pretend that this is going to be decades from now and and it's not going to happen to me. And when it does happen to me you know, the, I'll, I'll just take my chances or whatnot. But here's the thing. Um, there is, there's an increasing thought, the, the way that we've been doing this as a country, it, it might not be working as well as we thought. Okay, so so the traditional conversation I've been in for a long time, and a lot of lawyers and a lot of doctors have been in for a long time, is that you should do, you should do uh, end of life decision making in a living will document, All right. uh, and and so you can tell the world what you want to have happen. And though that thinking is not bad, I think the way we need to think about that document is is the data is showing us that the way we have been doing it may not be the right way. Now, let's do a little bit of background first. Uh, there's really a couple of different documents that could apply here uh common in the estate planning uh, business is to do a document that's called an advanced medical directive where you name a healthcare surrogate decision maker if you can't communicate your own desires and then you give some instructions called the living will which is if i have an end stage medical condition so essentially the doctors think i'm going to die from this issue or i have a um a, a like a permanent Uh, unconscious situation, if I'm in a permanent coma with no realistic help of hope of recovery, then all of these other conditions apply. And I don't want this and I don't want this and I don't want this. Fine. Um, Another type of document is, is what's called an out of hospital. Do not resuscitate order which is can only be completed with the work of a doctor and, and is usually reserved for people with uh, terminal illnesses and or um, some sort of religious beliefs where they don't want certain types of treatment. But you can get a doctor and then, you know, the idea of that doc- document is currently... That if the EMTs arrive at your house and they find the document, they're supposed to follow the guidance because it is treated as a doctor's order. Uh, and then the third type of document, which is typically used in Pennsylvania in a care facility, hospital, nursing home, hospice facilities, what's called the pulsed form, a Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Uh, and this is a document also done in conjunction with consultation with the doctor that says, if I have these types of issues, uh, we are not to do, we're not to do the, the end of life CPR and all the rest. Okay. So those are the documents that we use. But what I want to talk about is the document that is the living will. This is the one that we do in our office. This is the one that if you go to the doctor's office, they'll have some form there that says, you know, these are my wishes and you fill out the thing. Um, since the 1980s, when you go into the hospital, it's been law that the hospital needs to ask you if you have one and if you don't have one, uh, would you like assistance in preparing one? And so we've got this law that sort of favors this document. And I think, by and large, there's nothing wrong with the document. There's nothing wrong with going through the document. But let's let's talk through a couple of specifics on, on why this matters. And, and one of the problems with this is when you do the document – um, there's a provision in our law in Pennsylvania that will allow you to say, okay, here's a, if I have the end-stage medical condition, um, you know, I've, I've named my son Joe to be the decision maker, and if I have an end-stage medical condition, then I don't want the tube feeds and I don't want the CPR, and I initial here and I initial there, and it's it's kind of like I go through the form. And at the end of the form, it can have a question that says, my agent shall follow these instructions or... My agent may use these instructions as guidance but can override my desires. Now, in America, we are, tend to be proud autonomous folks, right? So a lot of people want to answer this question as, no, I'll do it. I, I would say the majority of my clients over the years say shall. They say my my kids shall. And I think the thinking there is, look, these are difficult conversations. These are difficult decisions. If, I, if I'm at the end of my life and I say that my agent shall – uh, not do the tube feed or shall not uh, say CPR. And then, then my agent is essentially just following my instructions, communicating them to the doctor and doesn't have to wear a whole bunch of guilt about making the decisions. I don't want to put that on my kids' shoulders, etc. Um, okay. But the question is if we make these, these determinations mandatory, which I, I've 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 learned a lot about this through some personal experience in the last year with with an own, my own sick uh, uh, father who had COVID and was super sick and he had uh, an end of life document that said he didn't want this type of thing or that type of thing and then uh, it was it was sort of a shall document and then um, and then in completing the form he really had not contemplated. COVID. None of us had, right? So so your thoughts on whether you want respiratory treatment and you want a ventilator with COVID may differ than how you were thinking about this before. And I, I just, I use that as an example of sometimes the medicine changes, uh, sometimes the conditions change, and sometimes, you know, that it's not a perfect solution to just say, shall. Um, another thing that has kind of occurred and why living wills can fail is, okay, so since the 1980s, We've had the obligation at hospitals to ask you when you go in for the surgery or whatnot, have you done one? Uh, And let's say the answer is yes, or let's say they help you with one and you do one at that point in time. Well, there was a study done not too long ago, in the last couple of years, by a bunch of medical students who went out and actually uh, got permission to do this study. And they they found out that by the time the person had passed away or had been discharged from the hospital only 12% of the time did the living will actually make it into the medical record. So the people at the front desk know you have one. The doctors upstairs doing the thing didn't know, or they at least didn't know what it said, which is pretty concerning. Um, because there is, you know, well, what does the document say? And then, and then what happens if the document's not there, then what do we do about it? Um, so here's, here's what I think really, really is the way to do this. I still think we should do the document, but I'm starting to think more and more about whether we should say shall or whether we should say may. And if we're saying may, then what it says is, okay, here is here's an indication of my desires, knowing what I know today. But what I don't know today is what my eventual health care issue will be. And I'm not a doctor. I don't really know the statistics of this stuff anyhow. So this is kind of how I feel about it. But kid, Joe, you can consult with the doctor depending on what's going on at that point in time, and you can override my decisions. And then that solves a couple of problems for us. The first is it it um it eliminates a thing that um that occurs that's called the paper versus person dilemma, which is when there is an end-of-life decision being made, and the document says, uh, pull the plug, or I don't want the tube feeds to be more specific. There's no actual pull the plug, but I, I don't want this type of treatment. That's what the document says, but the kid is saying, no, go ahead and give him the treatment. If the document says shall, but the doctor is looking into the eyes of the kid who's saying, Yeah, do it. Even though that I know what the document says, my dad would not have understood this situation, do it. Then what's the doctor to do? And does the doctor does the doctor risk malpractice claims? Does the doctor risk people complaining about the person to his superiors or on the internet or whatever? Uh, and I think it's a difficult proposition to put the doctor in this position where the paper says this, the person is saying this, and now i got to make a decision on that, that impacts whether this person laying in the bed that can't communicate is going to live or die. Um, that eliminates—so by saying may, we're telling the doctor, listen to the person. We're giving the doctor clear instructions so that it eliminates the chaos in the room. It eliminates the lawyers coming into the room. It eliminates— it eliminates the headache. Another thing about being so, so, um, you know, cold about saying shall is this. We all like to be tough guys, right? We're, we're raised in a community, in a, in a country that values autonomy, it values self control, it values, I don't want to live that way. You know, most of us that have no disability, if you're alive and well without an existing disability, most of us tend to think about, disabilities as being horrible horrible things but people with disabilities don't necessarily feel that way right? so no i i in have no disabilities today i don't want to become paralegic but there's a bias in our culture and the studies prove this out that says that the the preconceived bias that disabilities are terrible and I wouldn't want to go through it often overwhelms the, the rational decision about, well, okay, but six months after my disability onset, I'm getting used to living with it. What's my real standard of life like? And people like to think that that standard of living is worse than the reality shows it out. Um, there are people, there's been studies over the years that say some people say that it, being incontinent is 70% worse than death. 70% of the people, rather, say that being incontinent would be worse than death. But that's not what people that have incontinence issues think. You know, I, we, I have a, a family member in my life that has Down syndrome. And I can tell you, this guy, and, you know, I don't want to get too specific, but the people that know my family know exactly who I'm talking about. He's the happiest person around. He's He's... He's got a better social life than I do. He does more fun things than I do. He's on he's on the the uh, vacations with his friends all the time. He's got supports and services. He's got a loving family. If you asked him what his quality of life is, he'll say it's better than average. If you asked somebody who is not disabled, what do you think your quality of life would be if you had Down syndrome? It would not rate as high. And and so I I just there's this bias amongst people that have no disabilities that becoming disabled would be terrible and so i think that that bias factors in when we're making these decisions of i wouldn't want to live that way well you know no you wouldn't want to live that way perhaps compared to today but compared to if you knew what that felt like to be in that position versus not being alive at all you might you might feel very differently about it there have been studies of people that are what's called locked in Meaning, locked in means uh, cerebrally, mentally, you are 100% intact. Physically, you can't do anything. Okay. Uh, maybe you can blink your eyes. Now, you're thinking clearly, you're understanding the situation around you, you just can't move your arms and your legs. There was a, a study that came out that said that people in that position rate their quality of life as higher than average. Um, I don't know how that could be. It doesn't like if you hear that and the first time I heard it, you're like, no, 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 no. Something's wrong with, with the math. But I think the answer is that disability itself does not equal suffering. Disability just means I can't do the thing that I used to be able to do or that maybe I was never able to do. And so I think that there's this bias of, I want to have an able body. I want to be as healthy as possible and anything else is unacceptable. But the reality is for people that have disabilities, they may prefer something else, but it's still acceptable quality of life. And we need to be thinking about that as we're being tough guys, filling out these forms saying I wouldn't want to live that way. All right. Now. Here's the other thing about this this sort of I want to make my own decisions this bias that we Americans have toward autonomy and making our own decisions and there's nothing wrong with this. I talk about it all the time. Don't give up control. Don't give up control. Don't give up control. But when it comes to this healthcare stuff, people don't make decisions. People don't like to do this. Um, so over the last couple of decades there has been over 100 million dollars spent toward educating the public on the importance of doing end-of-life planning. Doing the living will, talking to your doctor, getting the lawyer to draw it up. $100 million in public advocacy trying to get people to do this. And yet, and, and people know that you can do it. There's nobody listening to this radio show that's not familiar with the concept of the living will. But fewer than one-third of adult Americans have ever done it. So if if we all know that we can do it, And they've been telling us through all this advertising that we should do it. Then why aren't people doing it? And the answer is that if you asked me today, if you asked me, would I want a tube feed? The only answer is it depends. The only answer is it depends, right? It depends. I don't know what that means today. Does it mean I'm, I'm 50 years old? Does it mean I'm 90 years old? Does it mean I have dementia? Does it mean I have cancer? Does it mean, what does it mean? I can't fill out a form that says I don't want tube feedings if I don't understand the situation a little bit better, which is why I think it's important to consider it. It's important to do the form. It's important to have our indication of the way we're kind of thinking about this. But if we, if we can select that May box... Saying my agent may do this or do that, and these are do- these decisions I've made here are only guidance then what we're saying is we trust that the person that we're naming to be our surrogate decision maker is a person with rational judgment that can make the decision based on what they see going on at that situation after consultation with the doctors and getting educated on what the healthcare care issue is then then they can make they can make the decision. Uh, and so I really feel like it's important to do this. So so what is the best way to do it? The best way to do it is this, I think. I think we still need to do the form. I think we still need... The, the most important part is who are you going to name as your decision maker? And the second most important part is not necessarily what the document says your instructions are. The second most important part, maybe, to be... You answer may at the end. My agent may use these guiding, these rules as guidance rather than has to follow these instructions regardless of, of the, the situation that's going on. And the third, and, and maybe this is the most important, after you've kind of worked through that, and after you've named the proper person, folks, we have to have a conversation. You need to talk to your mom and dad, or mom and dad, you need to talk to your kids. Somebody needs to start this conversation that no one wants to have. And the conversation should not try to spot, I don't want this or that. It should not necessarily be about the, the treatment. What the conversation should be about is your values. What the conversation should be about, I think, is... These are the types of things that I consider important. I think the conversation should be about, uh, you know, things like this is the type of, um, Ethical uh, relationships. I want to have. I value having interpersonal relationships. If I'm so sick that I'm not having interpersonal relationships anymore because of dementia or something else, that should factor into the decision. If the if the answer is I can't read my favorite types of books, if I can't worship the way that I want to worship, if I cannot visit with my family members, if I don't recognize my family members, then factor in those types of values that I have when making medical decisions. But I think that if we rely too heavily on just, I don't want this treatment, it doesn't allow enough wiggle room to, to allow, you know, it's a black and white document. And a lot of the times it seems to me that end of life decision, what's ultimately going on there is gray. It's confusing. Sometimes it's made in a rush. Sometimes it's a stressful situation. Sometimes we got years to think about it, but we need to have a conversation about, you know, I had a conversation with so-and-so and they said this, and based on the conversation I had with my mom about what she found to be important, this, this medical situation is going to end what she thought was important. And therefore I'm going to use that in, in making my end of life decision for her. Um, and so, I think if you're listening to this and and this has struck a chord with you, the number one is you got to do some planning. Don't avoid the subject. Avoiding this issue, folks, unless you know something that I Ed, that I don't, doesn't change the fact that at some point in time somebody's going to have an end of life decision to make for you. So let's not put our head in the sand. Let's make some decisions about it. But let's think through it and have a conversation with the person, and then. And then I think the idea is to trust that person to consult with the medical providers and to make the decisions based on the conversation we had rather than locking them into some decision that today we don't necessarily know. All right. So there you go. Now, this show has all been about sort of my ideas around end-of-life planning, advanced care planning. If I had this, then I would want that. Um, And I I hope that you learned something. I hope that maybe you're rethinking the way that you have structured your documents. Maybe you're rethinking the way that you, um, maybe you're just thinking, oh, man, yeah, this guy, I need to go do something. Um, If you want more information about estate planning generally and of life care planning, then I would encourage you to engage us in a conversation. Um, The easiest way to do that, the least pressure way to do that is to come to one of our workshops. We do them all the time. They're free. You come in, you get your coffee or your water and your cookie, and um, you can have a conversation uh, with us. We're going to teach you all about wills and trusts and powers of attorney. We're going to teach you all about... using trust to protect long-term care, to protect assets from long-term care. We're going to talk about protecting your kids from um, from their potential future divorces. And all, all the things that I said at the outset of the show that all of my clients seem to think is important, we're going to teach you how to deal with those issues. Uh, but as part of this whole process, we also need to be talking about this healthcare decision-making piece, which I hope you learned something about today. So more information, go to com. That's S E C H L E R. Lawfirm.com, and you'll find tons of information. Now, one quick announcement for you. This is exciting, exciting. We've been working on it for a long time. We are moving our office this week. So if you call the office this week, uh, I apologize in advance for maybe uh, a little bit slower than average return calls uh, times. But I, I think my team will actually be very much on top of it. But we're moving our entire operation this coming week. Uh, and our, we're moving from uh, Mars to Cranberry Township. We are going to be right off the interstate exit of 79 if, you, if you're if you coming in or off the turnpike if you're coming into Cranberry that way. Uh, you could throw a football and hit my office from uh, from the interstate exit. But we're super excited. We're doubling our space. We've got new people starting. Uh, the law firm is is growing and doing amazing things for people. I couldn't be more blessed, and I couldn't be more happy. And so I hope you will join us uh, at an open house that we're having on Uh, August 18th. You're welcome to come uh, check out uh, the office, check out our staff, come and meet us uh, and and see the new office. We're super excited about it. Um, Find out more information at our website or give us a call, sechlerlawfirm.com, S-E-C-H-L-E-R, lawfirm.com. I hope you learned something today. I hope you don't make legal decisions without consulting with a lawyer. This show is meant to be educational and not uh, designed to make you make decisions on your own. Uh, come chat with us if you have questions. Your specific situation needs some legal advice. Thanks for listening.